Revelation 14. Say, but it's Father's Day, Pastor Will. Oh, we'll get you guys, don't worry. <laughs> Revelation 14. <clears throat> In Revelation chapter 13, it gave us a picture of Satan's plan, the mystery of iniquity in full motion. And, and it seems like he's going to be victorious. The Antichrist and the false prophet are rounding up the world to create their perfect without Jesus utopia. But chapter 14 has shown us so far that God's plan overrules the enemy's plan. Amen? <laughs> it always overrules, overrules his plan. And by allowing Satan's plan to come to fruition, God has separated all of remaining humanity into two clear groups. Everyone has been warned, and now everyone's choice has been made. So the consequences of those choices will now be seen because the end is here when we get to this point in Revelation. So chapter 14, beginning in verse 14, it says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time is come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire. And cried with a loud, loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horses' bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Here we see that the Lord is separating the unrighteous for judgment as it's about to fall. We'll begin to see that in chapter 15. But John says, and I looked, which means his attention is brought elsewhere. After the three angels come flying throughout the earth with their announcements, the one makes the announcement of the everlasting gospel, preaching the gospel to every human being who is alive on earth at the time, so no one will not understand the gospel. The second angel coming, warning that Babylon is fallen, do not trust in her. And the third angel also warning, do not take the mark of the beast, for if you do, you forfeit salvation. There is no turn turning back after that. After they give their announcements and then John gives some encouragement to those persecuted suffering believers, he sees something new. And I'm going to have the, the projector folks post up some scriptures up here now because I'm going to reference these pretty rapidly. Uh, you can write them down and study them on your own time to get more information. But it mentions here that what he sees is a white cloud and upon the cloud one that sat like unto the Son of Man. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, we see a white cloud overshadowed the mountaintop, and the Father's voice spoke out of the cloud. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 depicts Jesus coming with the clouds of heaven to bring judgment to the Antichrist in his kingdom. 
In Matthew chapter 24, verses 27 through 31, Jesus describes himself coming in the clouds of heaven at the end of the tribulation. This is a phrase or a picture, an image that is given to us in Scripture repeatedly to describe God, God's presence. So when we see someone who is on a white cloud, sitting on a white cloud, even before we get the identifier that it's the Son of Man and he has a golden crown on his head, we can know this is the Lord. We can take the Scriptures down. But it mentions here that one sat like unto the Son of Man. The reason that he's sitting is because while those Scriptures I referenced there, a couple of them refer to Jesus' return to the earth, Jesus is not returning yet. He's getting ready for something else here. And so he's sitting and he's waiting. Now, we know it's Jesus as well because it says, one sat like unto the Son of Man. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, John calls Jesus the Son of Man. Jesus referred to himself by the title the Son of Man more than any other way. He, if he referred to himself, this was the most common way he referred to himself. The title, the Son of Man, it speaks of Jesus' incarnation, of God becoming a man, how he came and triumphed over sin by his perfect life and by taking our place, his substitutionary death on the cross. This will be the last time that this title, Son of Man, is used for Jesus in the Bible because the next time we see Jesus, he will not be wearing this golden crown. He'll be wearing lots of other crowns. The golden crown here is the Stephanos, the victory wreath that was given to athletes when they would compete and they would triumph, they would, they would win. Here we see it's gold instead of the laurel wreath, the wreath of leaves that they would wear because a wreath of leaves can fade, it can die, right? It withers. You know, I, I get roses for my wife frequently and she saves them. Like you turn them upside down, you do things with them to preserve them. And, you know, they do preserve for a while, but eventually, you know, they kind of wither they just kind of crumble. Um, and so this is not a crown that will crumble. It's gold because Jesus was not temporarily victorious over sin. He was permanently victorious over sin. And our victor's crown, our Stephanos and Kevin, it will be permanent as well. The next time we see Jesus, <laughs> he's not wearing a Stephanos. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 12, we see him wearing many diadema, a different word in the Greek. Revelation 19, 12, his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and we learn later on it's King of kings and Lord of lords. These are royal crowns that Jesus wears then, not the victor's crown, royal crowns because he is taking his rightful place to rule over every kingdom of the world. He doesn't wear those crowns yet because he's still waiting for that time. Now we see Jesus here in Revelation 14, 14. He has in his hand a sharp sickle. This is a thin curving knife that's used to cut grain. Again, we can also know this is not referring to the return of Christ because not only does he wear a different crown here, but he has different tools here. He's got a harvesting tool here. When we see him in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, it says, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron for he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So different tools at his return, different crowns at his return. So this is not the return of Christ yet. Why is he sitting here? Because he's waiting for his father's orders for something that has to occur before he returns. Look at verse 15. 
And another angel, another compared to the three that came with their announcements, another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time is come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. This angel comes out of the temple, the holy place, the place of God's throne and in the Father's presence, and he tells Jesus to thrust in his sickle and reap because the time is come for you to reap. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Jesus was asked by his disciples, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> Always the burning question to them. And Jesus responded in verse 7 of Acts chapter 1 in an interesting way. He said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. There are times, there are specific timetables of which this is one of those times that the Father has his timetable for. In fact, Jesus doesn't know. Jesus referring to his return to get his bride says, no man knows the day or the hour, only the Father in heaven. So there are a few things on this timetable, this plural times that Jesus mentions here in Acts 1-7, and this is one of them. In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, we referenced it last week, but Paul, when preaching on Mars Hill, he referenced this time that was coming. And the times of this ignorance, their idolatry, God winked at, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Acts 17, 31, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, referring to Jesus. So here is Jesus. He's waiting. He's been waiting for this specific moment for many centuries, and now it has finally arrived. The Father says, it's time. It's time to reap the earth. And so it says in verse 15, thrust in your sickle, and reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, I've been saying this all throughout the book of our study of Revelation, the book of Revelation. When we see this phrase, either those that dwell on the earth or the earth, it is a reference to unbelievers, okay? The phrase here when it says to reap the earth or to, for the harvest of the earth is ripe, that's not a positive thing. This is a judgment type of thing. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 3, it tells us the 144,000 were redeemed from out of the earth. If the 144,000 are redeemed from out of the earth, then the earth being reaped here cannot be the same thing. This has to refer to unbelievers. We get more indications that it's unbelievers here as we move through the end of the verse. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. The word here for ripe is not the word in the sense of, ooh, it's a good shiny apple that you can eat. It'll be really juicy and tasty. No, the word here for ripe means overripe. It means to become dry, shriveled, and withered. I bring this up because there are those who would place the rapture of the church at the midway point of the tribulation, and they will often use this text right here to say, well, this is the rapture. This happens at the midpoint of the tribulation, so this is the rapture. There is nothing, though, in this verse at all that describes believers in any way, shape, or form. John has already spoken to the persecuted believers. There is nothing here mentioned to them about rescue in the verses that he mentions. You know, he says, blessed are they that die in the Lord from thenceforth. Who's going if, to, if, if believers are just going to be raptured out in a few seconds, then why is he telling them, blessed are they if they die? 
These are not believers mentioned here. These are unbelievers. There's nothing in this verse that describes believers. There's some more verses I'm going to post up here because, again, I'm going to reference them quick, and you can write them down that way, and you can, you know, do your own Bible study on them to go a little bit deeper. But in Matthew 13, verse 6, Jesus uses this word ripe to describe the seed that falls on stony places and withers away because it had no root. That's unbelievers he's referring to. In John 15, 6, Jesus used this word to describe those who don't abide in him unbelievers. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus ordered his servants not to remove the tares because they might accidentally tear out some wheat too. He says, let them grow until the time of the end, until the time of the harvest. And then in the time of the harvest, what we're seeing here, he will deal with those tares. In Matthew 13, 30, Jesus explains it, the time of the harvest. What we're reading about right here in verses 14 through 16 is that time. The end is here. There is no more chance to repent. The unbelievers are being reaped. Now, some hear that interpretation and they they question it because they don't understand. Well, how could John describe one event in two separate harvests? I thought this is believers and then the grapes are the unbelievers because that's the one that mentions the wrath. The problem is, is it's not one event. These are two separate events that are being described here. The harvest of the wheat is the judgment on unbelieving Israel. The harvest of the grapes is God's judgment on unbelieving Gentiles. You see, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 19, Jesus uses the same word for withered, the same word here, overripe, to describe that fig tree after Jesus cursed it for not having fruit when it was supposed to. Remember that? You always wonder about that. You know, like Jesus just walking around, he's like, man, I'm hungry. And he comes to a tree, and he's like, ugh, die, you know? Like, man, it's just a tree, Jesus. No, it's not just a tree. There's a point. There's a point. And when they come back to it later, and the disciples actually mention and go, Lord, that tree you cursed is dead. And he's like, yeah, there's a point to this. The whole context of when that happens is when Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and he comes in on the triumphant entry when he's heralded as king and the nation rejects him. He came to his tree, a fig tree. A fig tree is a common symbol for the nation of Israel. And in it he finds no fruit. No fruit. The withered grain that Jesus harvests here represents unbelieving Israel. Paul predicts in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 27, that all living Israelis will be saved when he returns. It says that, though, because all will repent who are living, and they will turn to faith in Christ. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him like one mourns the loss of his son. They will realize that they missed their Messiah, and they will turn to him in repentance and faith, and they will be saved. But what about before Jesus comes back? Many, many scriptures in the Old and New Testament explain that unbelieving Israelis will be judged for refusing to turn to Christ during those seven years. One such section of scripture is in Ezekiel chapter 20. Turn there with me real quick. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 through 38. Ezekiel 
often prophesied about Israel's return from Babylon to the promised land. That was fulfilled. There were other times where he prophesied about Israel's return to the promised man in the land in the last days, in the end, end, end times. This is one of the times about the end. I'll point out how we can know that in a second. Ezekiel 20 verse 33 says, As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the country or countries? Countries, plural. Babylon's one country. When Ezekiel talked about coming back from Babylon to the promised land, that's one place. After the Romans drove them out of the, out of the promised land in 70 AD, and of course, it didn't really occur fully until about 120 AD when they attacked again and really drove them out. And the diaspora happened as it, Jewish people were scattered all over the earth. They were driven into many countries. This is what Ezekiel is referring to here. But God in the end will bring you out from the people, from the Gentiles. And I will gather you out of the countries wherein you are scattered with a mighty hand. And when Babylon conquered Jerusalem, they didn't scatter them. They pulled them off to Israel. I mean, they pulled them off to Babylon out of Israel. With a mighty hand, with a stretched out arm, with fury poured out, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face. Like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness uh, of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, says the Lord God. When Israel comes back into the land, that God is going to plead with them for these seven years to repent. Verse 37, and I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. That phrase, pass under the rod, it's a shepherd reference where all sheep had to pass single file into the shepherd's fold. It was very common back then for shepherds to work together and they would have their flocks. And you say, well, how do you tell the difference between whose sheep is whose? Well, Jesus explained. My sheep know my voice, right? Jesus explained that because it's something that was around back then. All shepherds, their sheep understood their voice for the most part. So as you're going through single file, maybe one got mixed up and you said, nah, Fluffy, you're over there with Bob. You couldn't come in. So passing under the rod is the idea, are you my sheep or not? If you weren't of his sheep, but you got mixed up somehow, or you didn't get to go in. I will cause you to pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Verse 38, so what about those that aren't his sheep? And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. And I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and, but they, and they shall not enter the land of Israel. They'll go into the land, but they won't be able to stay there through the kingdom. And you shall know that I am the Lord. He will bring them out of the lands where they're scattered, but they won't be able to enter into the kingdom. They will be experiencing God's judgment for their unbelief. The Bible predicts that Israel will return to the land in the end times, but that they will be there in unbelief. We covered that in Ezekiel 36 and 37. And during those seven years of great tribulation, the Lord will plead with them to repent. He'll have two witnesses that will testify of Christ. The 144,000 will testify of Christ. And many will repent, but many won't. And those rebels will experience God's judgment at this point in time. They will be separated from the faithful. And they will not enter into Christ's kingdom on earth. Now, this is not just an Old Testament concept. Jesus taught this concept in Matthew chapter 25. 
In fact, Matthew chapter 25 is the perfect parallel to Revelation 14, 14 through 20. When we see the parable of the virgins in the beginning of Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents, that refers to um, Israel, um, to the idea of of, um, Israel during the Great Tribulation. The final section of Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats refers to the judgment of the Gentiles. Now, many people, they, they, they look at Matthew 25 and they try to apply that to the church. They'll use the parable of the ten virgins to warn about being in the church but not being born again. They'll use the parable of the talents to talk about being faithful with what God, God entrusts you. And they'll use the judgment of the sheep and the goats to remind us that when we are ministering to those who are in need, we're actually serving Jesus. All those ideas are true, but that's not the proper interpretation of Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 in context has nothing to do with those things. In fact, if you look at the end of the parable of the talents, what happens to the guy who had the one talent and hid it? He's cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a description of hell. Trust me, if I'm not faithful with a gift that God's given to me, he doesn't send me to hell. That's not a proper interpretation. Beginning in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus responds to three questions from the disciples. When will the destruction, the temple be destroyed? What things will happen before the world ends? And then number three, what what things will happen before you come back, Jesus? Those three questions are still in Jesus' mind in chapter 25. Jesus would not begin answering those questions in chapter 24 and then all of a sudden switch gears in chapter 25 to discuss being faithful with what God gives you or being nice to people who are in jail or who need food, even though those are principles that are taught elsewhere in Scripture. Jesus is still answering those three questions in Matthew 25. And so when you get to the parable of the virgins in Matthew 25, we're seeing Israel as a nation. They rejected Jesus as their Messiah when he came the first time, but at his second coming, they'll all be sleeping. They will be there in unbelief, but some will have their lamps ready at the end. Some will have their lamps lit with oil. Oil, of course, is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Some will be born again. Many will be born again. So, Israelis from all over the world will return to the land in unbelief. And during the Great Tribulation, many will return to the Lord. They will have God's Spirit in them, and they will have a great love for Jesus. But some will rebel against that. They will rebuild a temple and they'll return to the Old Testament sacrifices, which will be an abomination when you consider that Jesus is the final sacrifice. Sometimes I see Christians get giddy when they hear about, oh, the temple's being rebuilt, the temple's being rebuilt, like it's some happy, good thing. We should be no more happy about the temple being rebuilt than when your Chick-fil-A bill comes up 666. (laughs) They're both things that are not good things to think about, you know? I understand that there's a sense of, oh, we're closer to the end because that's what's going to happen at the end. But it's not a good thing for the nation of Israel. If they have that temple and they're doing their sacrifices, none of them work. They're an abomination. If I were to give my, let me me rephrase it this way. If my kids, one of them were to give me a Father's Day gift today, and then, you know, they were to say, hey, dad, you know, can, can we go out and, you know, can, you know, I, I, got you, I got you this, you know, gift. Can we go out and use it today and play with it? And I said, no, son, I've, I've got to go. I've got to go out and I've got to take this odd job so I can afford to go get the thing you gave to me. Dad, I already gave it to you. Yeah, yeah, but I need to go get another one. I need to get a better one. Wouldn't that be offensive? 
How much more when we have Jesus' sacrifice on the cross where he's already paid for everything of which all those Old Testament sacrifices were just pointing forward to, and now you're just going to persist in these sacrifices? It's an abomination. It's an offense to the Lord, not accepted by the Lord. In the book of Hebrews, it makes it very clear, going back to the Old Testament sacrifices, it says there is no more sacrifice for sins there. So when it's done, it will be done in rebellion to what the two witnesses are preaching, to what the 144,000 are are sharing and evangelizing about. And when the Lord is making clear through all these events of the first three and a half years of the tribulation that Jesus is the Messiah, and these rebels still refuse to believe, they, like those who take the mark of the beast, will be shut out of salvation. The Son of Man, the one with the crown sitting on the cloud, will say, I never knew you. That's the point where we are here in Revelation 14. The withered grain is harvested for judgment, unbelieving Israel. The end that Jesus predicted in Matthew 25 is here. The door is shut. Now we get to verse 17, and we have a second event, the reaping of the unrighteous Gentiles. Verse 17, and another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire. And he cries with a loud voice to this other angel. Got lots of angels in chapter 14, six of them total. The altar here that's referenced, the angel who came out from the altar, is the altar of sacrifice, the place where our sin is judged. The fire from the altar, of course, is what consumes the sacrifice. So this is the angel where it mentions that he comes from out of the altar who had power over that fire, the fire of the altar. We met this angel one other time uh, in Revelation chapter 8, verse 5. He's the angel who's in charge of bringing judgment for sin. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 5, it mentions, and the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and cast it into the earth, and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. That's at the seventh seal. Now, when we went through that, we talked about how the altar of sacrifice is both the place of forgiveness and the place of judgment. Which one it is for you and for me depends on how we respond to Jesus' work on the cross, right? If I turn from my sin and place my trust in Jesus' sacrifice for me, well, then the altar consumes his sacrifice. You know, it's, it's efficacious for me. It matters for me. It consumes the only thing that can pay the price for my sin, and it's enough. But if I reject Jesus' sacrifice for me, that fire which is supposed to be satisfied with Jesus' offering will consume me. There is nothing to intercede, nothing to get in the way of that fire from bringing judgment. And so with time expired to repent, everyone having made their choice, the angel has no other way to hold back the fire because Jesus is the only way to be saved from it. There is no other sacrifice for the world's sin except Jesus. None. Nothing you can do to atone for your sin. Nothing you do to make up for it. There's no amount of good deeds that you can do to outweigh whatever it is that you've fallen short of. And thus this angel, because time is up, he orders his fellow angel to reap the unbelieving world. He says to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, 
Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. The phrase they're fully ripe, it means to be fully grown and almost bursting with juice. Some say, well, isn't the vine also a symbol of Israel, the grapevine? It is, but it mentions very clearly here that these are the vine of the earth, not the vine of the Lord. This is not the, the vine that, uh, that uh, would represent Israel. This is the world, for her grapes are fully ripe. You know, sometimes we look out at the evil in the world and we think, well, can it get any worse? God, why do you wait still? God waits because he knows just how much that grape can handle. He knows how much those grapes can handle before they burst. He waits because the time isn't right. He doesn't want anyone to perish who could still be saved. But there will come a time when God must judge. He is the only one who can accurately assess when that time arrives. Because when that time arrives, it will be brutal. God's judgment will be brutal. Look at verse 19. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horses' bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. In ancient winepresses, grapes were dumped into large basins where workers would tread on them to extract the juice. And trust me, grapes did not survive that process. Nobody had to jump really hard on a grape to get it to burst. The feet would crush those grapes and the juice would flow out into another basin where it would go through different fermenting processes to be turned into wine. The Lord used the image of the wine press frequently to describe his judgment in Scripture. But this is not just any wine press, this is the big one, the great wine press, the massive wine press of God's wrath. All of God's intense anger at every sin and every bit of harm that these rebels have caused is stored up in this winepress. And that is a lot of intense anger that will be unleashed. It says in verse 20, the winepress was trodden. Where was it trampled? Outside the city, a reference to Jerusalem. And blood came out of the winepress even unto the horses' bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. That's 200 miles. So, where this wrath of God falls will be in a 200-mile radius around the city of Jerusalem. In Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 14, this exact event is listed. Joel 3, verses 9 through 16, 14, sorry. Joel 3, 9 through 14. The prophet is told by the Lord, proclaim you this among the Gentiles. What's the proclamation to the Gentiles? Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm strong. Let all your your weakest troops say, we can take on the Lord. We can do it. Assemble yourselves. Come, all you heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause your mighty ones to come down, O Lord. 
bring them all here into this valley that we'll see in a second. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I judge all the heathen round about. Put you in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the winepress is full. The fats overflow, and their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. When we look at this radius around Jerusalem, this 200-mile radius, that stretches from Cairo to northern Saudi Arabia all the way up to the country of Jordan, the city of Damascus and Syria, and all of Lebanon. That is the exact area that the campaign of Armageddon occurs in. Now, we will cover the details of the campaign of Armageddon when we get to Revelation 16. If you want a sneak peek, you can go back to, I taught about it in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11 gives the most details on the campaign of Armageddon. Armageddon is often called the battle of Armageddon. That's not a good way to describe it. The word uh, for uh, battle, uh, you know, that's used when we we talk about uh, the, the sixth bowl judgment that is Armageddon. It refers to a campaign. Armageddon isn't a single battle. It's a campaign that occurs over months, maybe even years. We can't know for sure because no timeline is given. And tons of blood will be spilled over this 200-mile radius region during that campaign. Entire cities will be leveled to the ground never to rise again. And yet, yet, none of that death and destruction will compare to what happens when Jesus returns. None of it. There will be three regions that Jesus deals with immediately upon his return, and all three of them are described as bloodbaths. First, we have Basra, where the Jews will be hiding from the Antichrist. Secondly, we have Jerusalem, which will be overrun by armies. And then thirdly, we have the Valley of Megiddo, where the world's armies are fighting, and when they see Jesus coming with his armies, they will put their conflict behind them to unite against him. All three are described as bloodbaths in Scripture. Look at Isaiah 34 with me. Isaiah 34, verses 1 through 6. The Lord says through Isaiah, come near you nations to hear and hearken you people. Let the earth hear and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations and his fury is upon all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be cast out and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. And all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls off from the vine, and as a failing fig from the fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven, uh, uh, sir, shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idumea. That's where Basra is in Idumea, the region of Eden, Edom. And upon the people of my curse to judgment, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with the fatness um, and with the blood of lamb and of goats with the fat of of the kidneys of rams for the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Idumea. In Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 4, Isaiah has a vision of the Lord coming from Basra having rescued the people of Israel who are in hiding there and he says, who is this that comes in white garments that are stained with blood? 
And the Lord says, it is I, the Lord, who is mighty to save. I sought for a man who would stand in the gap for my people. I sought for a man who would, who would, who, you know, who would do it, and I found none, so I, I myself came to save. I brought my strong right arm to save. I tread out the winepress alone. Jesus himself, his white garments that he comes in in Revelation 19 will be spattered in blood when Basra is the people are delivered from the Antichrist armies in Basra. Look at what happens to Jerusalem, to the enemies of the Lord in Jerusalem, Zechariah 14, verse 12. Zechariah 14, 2, the Lord says, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half the city shall go forth into captivity. The remainder of the people shall not be cut off from the city. But then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. It will be overrun by those who are attacking it. They'll think they've got it. They've got, they've got slaves. They've got captives, prisoners of war. They've won. And then Jesus will come. And it says in verse 12 what he will do to the enemies. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. Their eyes shall consume away and their eye sockets, their tongue shall consume away and their mouth. That sounds horrible. But that's what will happen. It's Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark ending on steroids. And then, of course, Megiddo, Revelation 19, verses 17 through 21. When Jesus comes here, verse 17 of Revelation 19, and I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them, the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies, the Antichrist, and all the, the armies of the world gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse, Jesus, and against his army, us. Not that we have to do anything, because look what verse 20 says, and the beast was taken. Jesus just snatches him. And with him the false prophet snatches him too, that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshiped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest, Jesus just speaks, and they melt. The remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeds out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Now, if you think that's bad, the ending of this campaign would have been far worse if God did nothing. For in Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, that if the days would not be shortened, there would be no life left. But for the sake of the elect, those who are believers, who are still alive, he does shorten those days. And yet, even though we see that it would be even worse if he didn't intervene, the devastation of God's judgment here is beyond sobering. It's beyond sobering. It's meant to be beyond sobering because it's meant to wake us up. It's meant to wake us up and to realize this is coming for anyone who is lost. Which means that we, while we still have time, we need to wake up 
and redeem the time. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5 with me and Paul the Apostle writing in Ephesians 5, he makes this separation just like Jesus does. He, he separates the, you know, the unbelievers, unbelieving Israel, unbelie- you know, from the rest of Israel, unbelieving Gentiles from, from the rest of the world that has placed their trust in Christ. In the same way Paul does this, he talks about the, the way of darkness, the way of the unrighteous, and then he talks about the walking in the light and the path of light, those for the, for the righteous, those who are walking with the Lord. And he urges us to live in the light, to walk as children of light. And so in verse 14 of Ephesians 5, he says, wherefore he says, wake up, you who are sleeping. (laughs) Wake up and arise from the dead and Christ shall give you light. He says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Guys, we don't have time to be fools. (laughs) People are dropping off into hell around us. We don't have time to be foolish. We don't have to have time to have, have um, priorities out of whack because we need to redeem the time because there's going to come a time when people are out of time. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And one of the things that is God's will is to not be drunk with wine where it is excess, but to be filled with God's Spirit. More than ever, we need to be filled with God's Spirit because time is running out. We need to redeem the time while there's still time. And as you move through the rest of Ephesians here, you know, we read about Spirit-filled husbands and wives. We read about Spirit-filled employers and employees, right? Read about how to conduct spiritual warfare, you know, putting on the armor of God. What it looks like to be someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit. And right in the middle of that is this section in Scripture. One of the areas that we are exhorted to wake up, redeem the time, and be filled with God's Spirit now is in regards to the parent-child relationship. In Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Guys, this text about waking up, this text about a separation, about doing life differently is very appropriate for Father's Day. Because for those of you who have fathers this morning, if Father's Day is the only day you honor your father, then you're missing the point of honor your father and mother. Honoring your father is always the right thing to do. We say, what does that mean to honor my father? Well, the word honor means to give high status to someone, to see them as valuable, to respect them. And of course, if you are a young person who's still living at home, the way that you show that is through obedience. You say, I don't agree with the way my dad does things, or I don't agree with his perspective on life. You don't have to. You just need to do what he says. I tell my kids that all the time. Well, I don't, I don't know if I see it the same way you do. That's fine. You can see it a different way when you're out of my house. <laughs> but when you're here, you're going to do it my way. You're welcome to your own opinions all you want. But when you're living here, you're going to operate under my opinions because there's blessing when you do that. You know, to any of us of 
of an age, doesn't matter how old we are, if our dads are still around, we honor them by giving weight to their influence in our lives. I'm very blessed that it's easy for me to be thankful for my dad. My dad is probably my biggest cheerleader. He's a good friend. And there are so many admirable things about his life. And I understand that some of you may not have that experience. Maybe you have a bad relationship with your father or your father wasn't a good father. Maybe he wasn't a believer. Maybe he's not walking with the Lord. But the path of least resistance is the one to say, I'm not gonna put value on anything about him. The very nature of the word honor means to give weight to something. And so when we think about what it means to honor our fathers this morning, we should give weight, time, thought process, energy into finding something, if not many things, that we can say thank you for, that we can hold them in high esteem, even if there are many things that we don't hold, many actions that they've done that we don't hold in high esteem. For the Christian, the path of least resistance is never the path of righteousness. It's always the path of denial of self, taking up our cross and following Jesus. And that means we be like the Lord who told Jeremiah who was done. He was done with his people. And the Lord said, Jeremiah, if you want to be like me, you'll figure out how to extract the precious things from the vile things to be able to find those few precious things that are still there even though there's a lot of vile things. You know, God will not honor us if we do not honor our fathers. But conversely, there's a beautiful promise. If we do honor our fathers, there's a huge blessing for everyone involved in the father-child relationship. And so while I encourage you to honor your dad today, to spend time with him today, let's be those who follow God's command to honor our fathers every day, amen? Well, there is one more verse here, forefathers. You don't get out of this freely, men. God also has a special message for fathers who are waking up, redeeming the time, and being filled with God's Spirit. It's a message with one do and one don't. The don't is first. Do not provoke your children to wrath. It's, the phrase provoke to wrath is all one word in the Greek, and it just speaks of harsh parenting. It's really simple. Provoking to wrath means don't be a harsh parent. Don't don't have harsh parenting techniques. Now, note I said harsh, not strict. Some of the strictest men, fathers I've known, have been some of the most gentle men I've known. This prohibition here of not provoking them to wrath, of not being a harsh parent, it speaks of disciplining yourself even as you discipline your kids. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, what right have you to say to your child that he needs discipline when you obviously need it yourself? Convicting. So don't be undisciplined in your parenting. Don't be a harsh dad. But do bring them up. It means to raise a child to maturity. How? How? How do I raise them to maturity? In the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that's just a simple phrase that means training and teaching. It means discipline and then instruction. And that's the job of a father. The job of a father is to equip his children so that he can loose them on the world as solid, mature adults. Not perfect adults, but adults who understand what life is about. 
that it's about denying myself, taking up my cross every day, and following Jesus. So while the end may not be here yet, it is far closer than it was when John first penned those words in Revelation 14. And so if there was ever a time that needs dads who live like this in Ephesians 6.4, it's today. It's now. And so if you're a father this morning, this is my challenge to you. Be a dad who's, who is an example of denying self, taking up your cross daily, and following Jesus. Be a dad who invests time into training and teaching your children what living like that looks like. Amen? Let's all stand. First service sermon was much shorter. You all must have needed to hear more. It is an honor to be a father. I'm sure many of you dads, when you held your kid or maybe when you brought someone into the family, you weren't their biological dad, but you became their dad in another way. Imagine there are precious moments, you know, when you thought, man, I'm a dad. I'm, I've influence in this person's life like no one else will. It is a privilege. It's an honor. It's also a great responsibility. And so... Lord, we pray right now that you'd fill us with your spirit as dads. Even as I say these words to every other dad here, I feel the weight of them in my own heart as a father. Lord, I know I don't always deny myself, take up my cross daily and follow you. I don't set that example. I'm not always the parent that should be in his training and his teaching. So Lord, this morning as Many dads are just saying, Lord, I'm committing to you to be that dad, to be a, a, a dad who is waking up, redeeming the time by being, not being a harsh parent, but by raising my children, thrusting them into the world, loosing them on the world with an example and instruction of what it means to deny myself, to get my cross and follow you. Lord, is, there are men who are saying that and committing that to you right now Please fill them with your spirit so they can accomplish that task. We can't do it on our own. And Lord, for all of us who have dads this morning that are still with us, Lord, Lord, show us how we can honor them. Help us to not take the path of least resistance, but to give weight to the influence of our fathers in our lives that we might find some way to honor them and thus honor you with our obedience, knowing there's a blessing for those who do so. In Jesus' name. Amen.